Alright, welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Timothy Plain. And I'm Ulrich Purcell. Each week we discuss different filmmaking topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. So what's up? What's up, what's up, man? How you doing? Tired for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I just got tired too, but I think it's because I haven't had coffee yet and uh, I'm not going to have coffee until after the podcast. So What? Yeah, because I don't have this any coffee. This is a coffee. whole new Ulrich? Yeah, there's, oh. there's no coffee in the house. You and, ran out of coffee. Yeah, and none of the um, <laughs> the cafes all open at <laughs> 7.30 around here. Or what, maybe oh, one's man. at 7, but... Should we take a break halfway through this recording so you can get coffee? No, no. I did some push-ups and sit-ups, so I think that's like my energy. (laughs) Um, You know, that'll kick in soon, I hope. Because, yeah, usually you're late because you have to press your coffee and wait for it. And this morning, you're actually early. Yeah, maybe maybe I just need to not drink coffee before we record, and then I'll always be on time. And we won't have to. Maybe let's see how it turns out. Maybe this week, this recording is going to be even better. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm feeling excited. I don't know about what, but um, I feel I feel excited in general to be talking to you right now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I've been reading this Truby book that I I told you about last week that I started on vacation. The this is actually one of the first pages in the book. He talks about like finding a premise that will change your life. And it's just been kind of like sitting in the back of my head since I've read it. I'm trying to figure out like, what does he mean by that? So I figured I'd ask you what you thought in basically what he says. And it's a very short passage in this book. He says like the step one in finding your story is, you know, find something find an idea that will change your life and he doesn't say much beyond that except for like how do you find this idea well you write down like every premise you've ever come up with and everything that you always wanted to see on screen any idea you have any character any story like anything just put it all down on paper every everything that you've ever thought about when it comes to story and then look for similarities between all those different ideas and thoughts. And then that'll help kind of guide you into something that'll be a project that's really personal to you. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like ma- mainly what he's saying is like, find something that's really personal. But the thing that to me, like, of course, that makes sense. But the thing to me that I'm, I would really want to know what he means is, what does he mean by change your life? Like, how can a story that you're writing change your life? I can, I know how it can change lives of other people, but I've never thought about like a story that you're writing can change your own life. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you can interpret that in a lot of different ways, you know, but I think for me, I would take it as something that you're so passionate about that, you know, as you write it, you discover more things about yourself as you're writing, you know, and that like, you know, you write these characters down. Maybe it's based on something that happened to you. Maybe it's based on something that you you saw or you read or you thought just whatever. But like maybe by writing it out, that will, you know, kind of change your own perspective on what you're writing about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I can claim that it's actually happened to me with the alternate, but I feel like in a way that movie, the script has changed my life just because I've been writing it for so long and I'm so like invested in it, you know? And like now it's like, I'll just kind of do anything to get it made at this point, you know? So I don't know. To me, that could also mean that too. It's like, you know, that's a different interpretation. <laughs> yeah. I thought about that 
is like, all right, you could definitely change your life by like the quality of something you've written is so good that it kind of changes your career path. But I, I don't feel like that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about passion. Like, you know, like not necessarily that the, the script is going to change your life because you discovered some divine knowledge that you didn't know through writing the script, but maybe that just by writing it and being so passionate about it that you're, that, yeah, that passion is what comes out of the idea, you know, that you're writing all these ideas, all these things that you want to find. And then you just stumble across something that is so important and impactful to you that like that is something that drives you to write the script. And that, and, and by doing that, that's the premise that will change your life. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's not yeah, I don't what know. he means, but. Because he says, if a story is that important to you, it may be that important to a lot of people in the audience. And when you're done writing the story, no matter what else happens, you've changed your life. Right. No, no. I, I see what he means. I mean, and I, I you know, because I kind of felt like that way. I don't know. I wouldn't want to say that. Like, because like for for the movies I've made, like, I don't really know if anyone's going to like them, but I like mm. them. Right. So, right. I mean, hopefully other people will like them because I also have that, you know, interest in them, you know. It's just fascinating that he writes something so big and lofty of like changing your life and then doesn't go into a lot of detail about it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's part of the the brilliance of that little passage because it's just like it's like, <laughs> it's like such weighted. Yeah, it's like such weighted words, and then it's like and he yeah he like you said he just goes right into like what you should be doing to find that idea, and he doesn't really talk about what the idea could be because I think that's the point is like it could be anything you know like it doesn't yeah. have to be one type of idea, it doesn't have to be one type of story, it can be any type of story as long as it's really important to you and you really care about it. Well, I will post this up in the show notes on makingmoviesishard.com. And if anybody else out there has some ideas about what they think he means by it, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. And uh, I like that passage. Like, um, I felt I really, cool. really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it made me actually want to try reading the book again, because it didn't really seem as scary after reading that, that passage. It's <laughs> like, oh, this is seems so, yeah, right. I like this. This writing style seems interesting to me, you know? Yeah. Well, really quickly, um, like... I wanted to talk a little bit about um, talking versus doing in my, uh, cause this is something I've been <laughs> uh-huh. struggling with a lot. Cause I keep on, I've been telling people for like months that I'm raising money for the alternate and I have yet to actually raise any money. Um, and <laughs> I was sort of just thinking to myself, like, why is this the case? Like, why am I not mm-hmm. raising, raising money? And I have all these excuses, like, oh, the script isn't done yet. And, you know, I'm trying to like get the poster and the lookbook and all this stuff. But it's like, in actuality, I don't really need to have my portfolio complete in order to uh, raise money. All I really need to do is develop whatever contract I'm going to use and then just start collecting checks from people because i know there's like people i know who already have said they're gonna give me money for the for this project so it's just like why haven't i done it yet and it's just why haven't you i don't know i think because i'm 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 making these excuses for myself like i want to finish the script i want to do this i want to do that and i like have this idea of like what's the underlying reason for that do you think that you're scared no, I don't know. Do you think you don't think you're ready for it? No, I guess I am a little apprehensive about the way to raise money. And it's just because I've never done it before. And so I'm, I'm a little like, okay, well, should I just try to go 
like to the big, in, like to investors first or these mythical investors that I don't even know who like some people have said, oh, I know some people who would invest, whatever, whatever. Should I go after those people first before I raise any money or should I just go to my friends and family and collect some checks from them and then just start the process? And then like when I go to the other people, they'll be like, oh, well, how much money have you raised? I'll be like, you know, $2,000 from like five different people and they'll be like, <laughs> oh, God. That's already too messy for us. Like, you know, we don't want to be involved. But, I mean, that's just a stupid fear. I don't think that's actually reality. I think you do both. And I think if you're really going to just get money from friends and family, just have them sign a contract that says, like, hey, if I find another form of investing, that means that I can't keep you guys involved in the process. I'll give you your money back and... No harm, no foul. Just have right? a have a clause in there for that. Yeah, yeah that makes and just sense. be like, so that way, if you talk to somebody that's like, oh, you already have twenty investors, like, that's you know, it is too messy for us. We we can't invest in a film like that. And be like, no problem. I'll cut them loose, and we'll we'll go with you. Yeah, I haven't okay. spent any of the money yet. I could just liquidate yeah. that or whatever you call it. Get rid of it, and then you know, just go, uh, you know, go with you guys. Yeah, you're right. Smart man. Because I think, especially since you don't feel like you know those big investors, then I think you just need to go forward knowing you know, where you think you can get the money. Right. And so just, you, you got to keep moving forward. I mean, we always talk about that. Just keep pushing forward. And right now, if you're paralyzed uh, because you don't know what the right, right direction is, then I think that's just a dangerous place to be. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm also just, wor- I'm working on the script. I mean, I would say at least twice a week, I'm putting like a good few hours into the writing on it, you know? So it's it's not as much as I'd like, but it's definitely, it's definitely progressing. Um, so it does feel like I'm pushing the project forward. It's just like, why haven't I done this really important thing that I should have done, you know, four months ago? And, uh, I mean, I have these reasons, but you're right. They're they're just excuses, really. I should just, the people who are like, yeah, I'm down. Let me know when you're ready. I should just be like, I'm ready now. (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. Especially if they're people, you know, well, let's talk about the discipline of pushing project forward. Like you, you brought this up as a topic you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, and maybe this kind of goes hand in hand with what you're just talking it, about it, with, it with the alternate. It does a little bit. Yeah, it's at least re- related. Like this this idea that discipline and art, like, are they like completely, can they be connected or, you know, is, is the nature of art so like spontaneous and creative and, you know, like untamable <laughs> that to try to apply discipline to it? Will, will actually in fact kill the art you know like and this is just something that I, I i think i've been thinking about for a while um and you hear a lot about in writing books like you know how do you how do you write like you can't just sit your your put your butt in the, in the chair when you have time and then hope inspiration you know just comes to you you know you have to like inspiration will come whenever it comes you know and you have to be ready for it so i don't know i just wanted to see what you thought about this like like how are you disciplined with your art like is there any discipline that you apply to your art well, I read the Stephen King book on writing. Yeah, I read that too. Like, I think it was like in 2000. So it's been like 15, 16 years since I read that book. And when I read that book and he said that he decided to treat writing as a job and that he explains like what that means and why he did it, that really resonated with me. And it's something that I've always done. So like for me, the discipline of my filmmaking is a job. So you do I, do the same thing? Do the same thing every day. Kind of like set the same same schedule up so that way every every day I can like just 
be there and be ready to 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 work and some days nothing happens and some days a lot happens but um i think the theory is is that by training your brain to say like this is the part of the day when you are going to work on your stuff that it'll it gives you more opportunity for inspiration to strike because let's say if you don't do that and you and inspiration just comes like in the middle of the day while you're at work you don't have an opportunity to use it so i think by training my brain to like know that there's certain times of the day when i'm i'm gonna to to work on my stuff then like either inspiration waits for those times or i can just hold on to it until that time comes yeah yeah, there's a there's a story from uh, I think it's Tom Waits, and he was like driving in a car, uh, you know, on the freeway or whatever, and then some idea came to him for a song, and then he had just like had to pull over any way he could and write it down because like you know that might not ever come again, you know. So he just like always has a pencil and a piece of paper with him, so he always just write down an idea wherever he can, however he can, you know. So I don't know. I, I kind of like, that's why technology is so great. Cause we can basically do that. Like you can be at work mm-hmm. and just like, you know, whip out your phone and be like, do, 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 just like write down the idea really quick, you know, in the middle of your job, usually, um, depending on what you're doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe not, not if you're in a meeting. Depending on, yeah. Depending on what that inspiration means. Like I, right. I think there's some people that write by inspiration that the, they have to wait until they just have this urge and like they're compelled to like sit down and write like 10 pages at once. Yeah. And yeah, you can't do that. But if it's just an idea, it's easy. Yeah. Just to pull out your phone, write the idea down really quick and then re-engage with it when you have time. Yeah. I, I guess I, I found for myself that I can't give myself a, a certain time of day to write. Like, you know, um, I, yeah, I know you, you told me you can't do that. Yeah. I, I tried. And um, even when I was like taking time off from work and I was just writing uh, my script, um, I would like just, you know, I'd have the whole day and I would basically just sit down and then like start writing and then get, you know, answer an email, do this, answer that email, whatever. And then like, you know, it, it would, I would just kind of write at different times of the day, you know, like mm-hmm. I would, sometimes it'd be 10 a.m., sometimes it'd be 2 p.m. And I think for me, I guess that's just how it, how it works. But I think what I need to do is just instead of saying, here's a time of day, I should just say, I need to write at least something every day, you know? Like a, a, yeah. any amount of time on my project every day, and uh, and then I'll, that'll set, satisfy my quota. You know, if you're ever going to be a professional in this business, you have to learn how to write to deadlines, or you have to learn how to do projects to deadlines. So if you train yourself to just not have any discipline, and you just like whenever inspiration strikes is when I'm going to work, you're going to have a really hard time when a paying job comes and somebody says, all right, you have five weeks to write the script. And then you're just like waiting around for that inspiration to come so you can write it. So that's why I feel like the discipline of, of figuring out a way to like write a little bit every day does come in handy. Yeah, I think every everybody has like a different approach to it. And there's no right way to do it, which is you and Colin talked about this or he brought up um, the Q and a with Jeff Goldsmith and hearing other writers talk about like what their process is. And it's so fascinating to hear because he asked some of these questions, like, do you write, do you write every day? And like, how many pages do you write a day? And some writers write two pages a day and they feel like that's enough. Some writers write 10 pages a day. Yeah. And some writers have like a, a strict schedule that they stick to and they write from like a certain time in the morning to a certain time of the day. And some writers don't. 
And so you really do have to kind of figure out what works for you. Like, I think that you just have to try some different things and figure out what it is that works. But also knowing that you have to come up with at least a rhythm to to know that like you could take a professional job and not have to rely on like just that inspiration striking. Right. Well, it's not about inspiration for me. It's more just about like putting doing it, you know, and I actually... And I work better under a deadline than I do without a deadline. I think that's kind of some, some of the problem. Um, <laughs> right. and, uh, in order to, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but like when I first wrote the very first draft of the alternate, um, I had made this wager with a friend of mine. Cause like I was like trying to write the script for like eight months or whatever. It was going to be like the strange thing feature. And, uh, he's like, man, you just need to have stakes in your life. You're like, you don't have any stakes. That's why you're not writing. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, not stakes to eat stupid, but like stakes, like you have to set stakes for yourself or you right. won't. What are the consequences if you don't? Write exactly. It? So we made a wager. It's like, okay, if you don't write your movie by this date, then you either have to give me $500 or run a marathon with me that day. <laughs> and, uh, and my friend is a, is an ultra marathon runner. So he can run a marathon at a drop of a dime. Like he doesn't need to train to run a marathon. So it was like a real threat. Um, and basically like I was writing the strange thing thing for like months and like it came down to like the last two weeks to, to before the stakes or whatever. And I still had like only 40 pages of this strange thing feature. And then I decided that I wanted to rip it up and start all over again. And I basically did that and I had like, I think a week left and that's when the idea for the alternate came was just like, I was like laying on my bed, like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like this does none of this makes sense. I hate this. This is stupid. Like I can't even make this movie anymore. Like it's too big. Like what am I even writing this? And then I just had the idea and then like I outlined over the weekend and then that next week I just wrote it and um it took me like I think I finished it like right the day before like right like the hour like the night before like it was due like Saturday and like I finished it like Friday at midnight or whatever and so you escaped the consequences yeah and then like he read it that morning and then uh then I went out and I bought a mistake <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah yeah I feel like a lot of people need deadlines to get stuff done and I think that comes from like being trained trained at school yeah i think it's just dangerous i think you have to like be self-motivated the, all the brilliant people i know that didn't have the the self-motivation are the people that never did anything that just talked and talked and talked and didn't, didn't do <laughs> right. anything right so i think you know I th- a, probably a lot just comes down to personality and like w- the kind of person you are yeah. but uh, if you can train yourself in any way just to have that discipline and not I think the motivation thing is probably bigger than discipline. Like getting motivated to me is really hard. Oh, I'm plenty motivated. Uh, motivation isn't uh, yeah. my problem. <laughs> it's just like, like actually getting down and, and making things happen. And I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I should give myself more credit because I am juggling mm-hmm. a lot of things with the alternate, whether or not I'm not actually writing every day, but I'm like emailing with my poster artist and I'm like, you know, doing this and that. I'm working on the rage still, you know, there's just lots of different things going on and then, you know, paid work on top of all that stuff. So it's not like I'm not doing anything. It's just like, there's just a lot to be done. You I know, you just have to make sure that you're prioritizing the right things. Cause right. what I tend to do is I procrastinate by working on other things before the things that I should really be working on <laughs> right. because either I don't have a deadline and so I just I'm waiting for like 
something to click into place before I start writing um, or just like checking emails or Twitter is so much easier than actually writing and it feels like I'm getting stuff done. But writing itself is so hard. Like I hate it. Mm. I hate writing. And yeah. there's there's days when it's, <laughs> it's where it's amazing and like everything just comes like smoothly and naturally. But for the most part, writing, it feels like a struggle and it's not fun. Yeah. One other thing I did, and I don't know if I talked about this at, at all either, but I have a, a friend who's a, another filmmaker, and she lives across the street from me, and I didn't even know this mm-hmm. until just recently. And, uh, you know, so every once in a while, like, we're trying to do it every week where we'll meet at a co- coffee shop and just sit across from each other and then, you know, just work in silence. So, like, mm-hmm. I'm working on my thing, she's working on her thing, and then, like, that just keeps us, like, you know, focused on our work and, like, doesn't allow us to do other things or, you know, go, you know, check the, well, we could check the internet in front of each other, but we just, you know, I think by like us, like being able to look at each other, it's like, you know, we're like motivating each other to stay focused and stay on point. And I was writing this part of the alternate, uh, when I was with her and it got to the point where I was like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Like, I do not know how to solve this problem. And by like by being there and like, you know, I had to, I had, I just had to solve it. Like I had to work on it. So I just, instead of writing some, the script, I like just started to write some notes about it. I wrote some other ideas of like, what could happen? What could it would be going on? What could he do? What could she do? And then I, I solved it. I solved it right there in front of her. And it was, it was amazing. It was great. It was so awesome. And I think that kind of having somebody to hold you responsible to stay on, on your task. Mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful for me sometimes. Yeah. You know? I think that's why I like writing partners. I've done a lot of scripts with writing partners and I've always feel that a part of it's because I don't have to rely wholly on myself to come up with ideas, but also it's just that there's a little bit of accountability. There's somebody else like out there pushing the project forward, checking in with you, helping write pages when you're kind of stuck. Uh, it's just two two minds are better than one. Yeah. I'm really jealous of people who have really wonderful partnerships and collaborators that they work <laughs> with, like whether it be a co-writer, co-director type, type of relationship. Although I don't know how I would actually re- react in a co-director uh, situation. I don't know if that would be healthy for me. It might be. I don't know. <laughs> right. um, but uh, but like, you know, like a producer, director or co-writers and then one guy's a director, one guy's a producer or whatever, like that kind of thing. Like I just I always get super jealous because it, having that collaboration is so special. And I think you can do things that you can't really do on your own in that kind of relationship. But, uh, mm-hmm. I haven't found a collaborator. Well, I have one friend who I collaborate really well with, but then he became a stupid architect. So oh, stupid architect. I know. I'm so pissed off at him. I, we just talked about it the other day. I was like, <laughs> yeah, you, you threw it all away, man, for like a, you know, a degree at Yale and, uh, you know, fancy architecture job. And you could have been slumming <laughs> it with me making movies. Goddamn. <laughs> but, uh, Anyways, it's all right. I mean, who who knows? I think like you could find like the next perfect collaborator for you could be, you know, right around the corner. You never know who you're going to meet or who you're going to connect with, yeah. who you're going to have that special relationship with. So I'm always open to meeting new people and working with new people, you know. Yeah, it's good to be open. At, oh, I was listening to you and Colin talk and Colin talked about his collaborator from Pixar. And I think he said that guy was like one in the IT department. He didn't even remember anymore, but... To me, that's like the kind of people that I usually find too. They're like, they're not the, like, I didn't find a copywriter at Goodby Silverstein and Partners to, to partner up with. I, I found people that like 
worked in the dub room or um, I'm trying to think who else I like partnered up with over the years, but they're usually like the people that maybe are a little on the fringe that right. aren't like the, the, the expected person. Cause I find that those people are the ones that think differently. Right. Exactly. And like, yeah. Ha- and, and also that are just a little bit more motivated. Yeah. They have because, some passion. Yeah. They're not like they're, they're not, they don't have a career to focus on so they can focus more on the writing aspects. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so that's fun. So yeah. does that does that answer some of your questions about discipline? Yeah, definitely. I I think it was a nice discussion just to kind of hear how. I mean, I already kind of had an idea of how you approached it, but it was just nice to talk it out with you a little bit and uh, yeah, you know, just sort of think about it and I don't know, like and maybe not put so much weight onto the t- the things that you want to get get done. Like you know, I've put so much weight on the fundraising, so much weight on you know, writing the script and it's like, you know, it can just be writing the script or it can just be fundraising. It doesn't have to be this like thing that's like, if you screw it up, you know, your life's over, you know, (laughs) which is how I feel sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. I feel that way too a lot. I think you you do have to give yourself a little room to like fail. I think it sounds bad, but I think you do have to allow yourself to fail and Allow by allowing yourself to fail, sometimes you you give yourself room to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's like the uh, at the Draper University where I I do video production work. That's like part of they have this like uh, this like little oath they say every morning before they start their day, and part of it is uh, fail and fail again until I succeed. And yeah. that's like what they say. It's like failure is part of, uh, of success, you know? I think that's true. Yeah. Especially for art. I mean, I think it's probably true for anything, but you know, I think it's definitely true for, for film. Like you, if you didn't make a movie that sucked or wasn't necessarily what you want to make, you'll never be able to make the movie that's good. <laughs> Unless you're some crazy people like, uh, Shane Carruth, apparently. Yeah. It seems like it. I mean, this guy. Like right out the gate, made a movie that won Sundance. Yeah. <laughs> so I looked into his career mostly through Wikipedia because I'm not like too familiar with him. I remember when Primer came out, and I remember seeing in the theater and being like really impressed with it. But I was mostly impressed with it because of the backstory on it. But I don't know where he came from. I don't know why he started writing and directing. It seems like he's more of an actor. Do you know if he made short films before he directed this feature? You know, I didn't look into that. Um, I, I should have. But I don't know if he did or not. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Well, let's just go with the fantasy part then. Okay. Like this, this is like this. This is going to feed into our filmmaking fantasies or filmmaking dreams. Right. All the things we warned people not to to get excited about. Right. But um, Derek, a listener, wrote us through our website and just said, "I don't know if you guys have talked about Shane Carruth yet, but if you haven't, you should." And we haven't, partly because I'm not like a huge fan. I don't know about you, but I I saw Primer. I never saw Upstream Color. I thought Primer was super solid and a really cool movie, but I wasn't like t- completely enamored with it. Like I, I wasn't following his career and like waiting for his next movie. Plus, I mean, nine years between movies is a long time. So maybe I just lost track of them. Yeah. So my relationship with Primer and, and, and this director, I don't even know how you say his last name. Is it Caruth? Caruth? I'm just guessing it's Caruth, but let me see if I can figure Caruth. out. Caruth. Okay. 
Well, anyways, um, when I was making Strange Thing, everybody that I knew uh, at the Studio B or like people who rented from me at the production company or whatever, they were always saying, Primer, Primer, got to see Primer. You're into science fiction? Got to see Primer. Primer's like <laughs> the best movie ever. Like, oh, you're going to love it. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then I think it took me until after I'd actually made Strange Thing to watch Primer Mm-hmm. And when I, I think I had built it up as like this amazing science fiction movie. And then when I watched it, I was kind of, um, a little let down, you know, like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't the movie that I thought it was going to be. And, um, I don't, I don't know. I just really wasn't, I wasn't that into it. Like there was so much talking and like expl- explaining things. And I didn't feel like there was a lot of action really, you know? <laughs> and it's like not even action as an action, like, action you know but just you know like things that would like happen you would see happen visually you know they're like we're walking Mm -hmm. around from building to building and talking most of the time it seemed and it's just like uh, i was just so drained by it um well we just lost like 10 listeners by you saying that (laughs) but thanks a lot i know i mean everyone's gonna hate on me because everyone loves that movie but i mean i was just (laughs) like i don't know i just kind of felt like eh. i mean i don't know i i should probably watch it again but uh, definitely my first viewing was not not that positive. I mean, I can see yeah. why it was like, it's pretty amazing that he made it for that budget and that amount of time, especially shooting on film, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But Well, it's uh, definitely like, it's a, it's a, what's, it's an intellectual science fiction movie. It's not an action science fiction movie. Well, not even, but I think, you know, you don't, you know what I mean, right? Like, I'm not saying I want it yeah. to be action and explosions. I'm just saying like, like have some things happen visually that we can see, you know, right. not just two guys talking, you know, <laughs> which is basically what the movie is. It's two guys talking on a bench. It's two guys talking while going to the machine. It's, yeah. two, you know, like it's it, de- it definitely makes you work for your story. It's right. not it's not a very passive experience. It's very hard to understand. Yeah, like t- talking about you know we talk about Jeremy Solnier all the time because we love him so much. But uh, like th- that's the kind of movie that like there's like no dialogue in like half of uh, Blue Ruin, but it's so visually engaging. You're like you can't help but be, be drawn into the story. You know. Well, to me, it's like in looking into Shane Carruth's career and like the the how behind his movies, I kind of was reminded of Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. and like he did, he did basically the same thing as Al Mariachi. He took $7,000 and made a feature film from it. But it's interesting that it's, he did it in 2004 mm-hmm. and the way his career uh, like unfolded from that film is completely different than how Robert Rodriguez experienced it. And also probably it's just because they make very different types of movies. But I was like, I was inspired just reading about him and he made primer for 7,000 bucks, shot it in five weeks. It took him two years in post-production and he only had a crew of like five people. Like there's a camera operator, assistant camera, uh, they had location sound, a PA, and a caterer. Wow. And then Shane himself was writer, director, actor, composer, editor, sound designer, and cinematographer. Mm. And shot on film, and their shooting ratio was two to one because he just planned everything out like very specifically so that way he could get it done for cheap. Yeah. 
This feels like old school, like like when Very I was in college school. style, you know, like mm-hmm. well, how you would make a movie. You just have to do everything. Although yeah. I, I tried to stay out of the acting um, of my own movies <laughs> just forever. But, you know, I mean, I've, I've definitely acted before in something I've made. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's pretty amazing that he what he accomplished. It's really amazing what he accomplished. And you think we, you know, our discussions about should I do everything myself or should I hire crew and do it? Like this feeds right into that. It's like you can do it all yourself. This guy proved that you can do it, do it all yourself. Whether or not uh, everyone can do that, you know, is a different story. I mean, I don't know why he, he was able to pull it off. Um, maybe it's the strength of his writing. I don't know, but right. he did it. He did it. He won Sundance. He won the grand jury prize. He got the Alfred P. Sloan prize at Sundance. And then he got a few other like awards at the Nantucket Film Festival and International Festival of Science Fiction. What I think is interesting is that then it took him so long to make a follow-up film. And his follow-up film was basically the same model as Primer. He'd shot at low budget and did everything himself again. Yeah. And I've kind of read some stuff from uh, about him that he doesn't want to enter the system. Right. That he kind of wants to operate outside the system. But when you look at these movies and you see how much he's spending on them, like, how is he making money? How is he making money to pay for his films? And because he's obviously not making money directing them or well, acting. I don't know. He's I mean, if you're, if you're if you're doing it all your own and your budget's fifty thousand yeah. um, dollars, and like I've seen the Upstream Color got a theatrical release and it also got on Netflix. Well, I mean, Upstream Color, he he self distributed. Yeah. So he but, Primer Primer might have been picked up. Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure he made money on that fifty thousand, right? Like, I mean, it seems pretty crazy that if he, I mean, I don't know. Do you know those stats? Did you see that? Because I, I can't imagine that if you're getting your movie in the theater, unless unless that was a complete loss, um, which I I don't know, maybe it was, but uh, I just I don't know. Like, I kind of feel like there's got to be some money coming back because that's such a low budget, you know, like fifty thousand dollars, and to have a movie that we all have heard of, you know, like it's got to have had made some money. Yeah. But did he make money off of it? Cause like, let's say that he sold primer at Sundance for like $200,000. Right. Cause it, uh, it, I'm looking at the stats here and it, it made $424,000 at the box office. So primer to me. Yeah. So to me, that means that probably think film who distributed it, probably didn't pay a ton for it right so let's say that they paid two hundred thousand dollars well that's still still, not a lot for like 10 years of what is he doing outside of whatever how much is that it's like 183 87 thousand dollars or something or hundred ninety three thousand dollars that you made that's pretty good but that has to last him for 10 years before he can get his next well he's probably doing other things right like you know yeah that's what I'm wondering. What is he doing? Does he have a day job? Shane, what are you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> I know he consulted on Looper. Yeah, he yeah, got paid exactly. For that. Yeah, I'm sure he got paid for that. Um, He's an actor, so maybe he did some acting jobs. Yeah, maybe he gets paid for some acting. I don't know. But he doesn't really know, take, but it's, take me as a guy and a person who'd like, you know, demand a lot of money to, to be an actor, though. He would just be like, no. oh, I will do it because I, I find this story interesting and I like your, yeah. you as a filmmaker or whatever, you know? I mean, he has like this cult status. He reminds me of like some of the other indie filmmakers that you're just kind of like, who who are they outside of their filmmaking? Like Jim Jarmusch or mm-hmm. um, 
David Lynch a little bit. Mm-hmm. Although they're they're pretty successful. They're like, very successful. Know. And then David Lynch would like end up like he was acted in a. In that uh, that couple episode arc in like the third in season Louis. of Louis or whatever, yeah. yeah so he just hilarious. pops up places. I just always wonder about these independent filmmakers and like what they're doing when they're not making a movie, right? And do they are they making enough money to like really survive, or are they just like living this really meek life in some small town and they just don't need a lot of money to survive? Well, Jim Jarmusch has made so many movies that like the royalties like you know unless he got like shitty deals on all of them he's probably getting some money for <laughs> mo- like a lot of those movies still you know um yeah. so i mean i'm sure he maybe he's just living off that i don't know who knows um but yeah i'd be really interested interested to hear like what shane shane's career has been exactly since primary and then since upstream color like what has been like the growth and how easy is it in him for him to actually make a movie can't he just go and be like mm-hmm. i want to direct this thing you know can you help me raise the money or does he have to like scrounge up that fifty thousand on his own somehow um like i'm how guessing does it work? that he's made a conscious decision not to enter the system and not get involved with investors so he can maintain control of his films that's my guess. Well, I'm sure, he, but he's got to find some investors who are like, oh, yeah, I love Primer. I love what you've done. Mm-hmm. Here's $50,000. Do whatever you want. I believe in you. All right. I trust you. You know, there's got to be out of all the people in the world, there's got to be people, somebody who's willing to do that for him, especially since Primer was such an, on a big scale. Like everybody knows what Primer is, you know? Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. So wh- why do you think that he's not getting more direct? or taking more directing jobs or making more movies. Well, I mean, you know, I, I haven't seen upstream color. I heard it's more out there than, than primer that it's like more experimental and more like mm-hmm. kind of like free flowing kind of, you know, out there film stuff, which sounds cool. Like I, I really want to see it. I was going to watch it yesterday, but my day was like so busy. It's just no way to, to do it. But, uh, but I think it's because he's trying to make a certain type of movie that has a certain type of feel to it. It's like very much like a singular type of uh, vision, obviously, that he has mm-hmm. for what he wants to do. Um, I mean, I can say that just by primer because it definitely had a very distinct style and a distinct vision that I think is pretty unique to that movie in some ways or in a lot of ways, maybe. I wasn't down with that vision, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but yeah, I think... You know, everything about going into the system would take away from that, you know, like it would take away from what he's trying to achieve. And he's obviously wants to have the ability to be all these positions. Like he likes being the writer, director, actor, composer, editor, sound designer, cinematographer. And I think most... Sounds like he's a control freak from what I was reading about him. Yeah, like most most uh, deals you would get to, to direct a movie... You would have to give up all of those, probably. I mean, maybe if they really liked him as an actor, maybe that he could direct and act and write, obviously. But the other ones, like I don't know, maybe some. I guess there are. There's there's definitely directors, cinematographers out there, but there's not very many of them. And I think, like you know, from the feeling I get, I, I mean, I haven't been in these situations, but from some stories I've heard, it it sounds like you know, if they want to, if like, oh yeah, I love your movie. Like, let's do something together. But it's like, then we want to bring in all our own people to make sure that you right. don't screw it up. 
you know so like they probably would want to surround him with all these different crew members and all these different producers and whatnot to ensure that the movie comes out the way they want it to and that's probably like exactly opposite to the way that he likes to work like he probably wants to be left alone you know and just to do his own thing and like not have to deal with uh you know fitting into any kind of position that someone lays out for him you know yeah that would that be sounds my like guess. he he's kind of an isolationist and he likes to work by himself which is why he does all the stuff you know kind of like the the artist that works in the darkness and then brings the stuff out into the light for everyone to see and lets the work speak for itself rather than like being like a really big collaborator i'm guessing the reason he hasn't done more films is he's just not great at collaboration that's interesting because like he's an actor so he must have some <laughs> ability to collaborate right and take direction because if he but maybe not when it's something he's written yeah maybe maybe yeah. when it's something that he's written it's, it's so precious to him that he can't yeah and i mean i get that like i understand you know that makes sense because to me it's like looking at primer to me that's like aronofsky's first film pie and you look at aronofsky's career trajectory as i feel like he could have completely had that career trajectory and decided not to for some reason yeah it's interesting because like you know, I haven't seen Pi, but Requiem for a Dream was his second movie. And that was like, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't say it was a big, big budget movie, but it was definitely like it had a, it must have had quite a big budget. Well, that's what I'm saying is like he went from Pi, which was a $68,000 independent feature shot on film. And it's very, yeah, kind of artsy and weird and sci-fi. Uh, movie and then he went from that to requiem for a dream which had a lot of the similar characteristics but was yet yeah, definitely a bigger budget yeah and definitely somebody came to him and, and offered him money and now now he's like at the level of i feel like a christopher nolan where he can almost do what he wants to do in like a big budget scale if he wants to yeah absolutely well Requiem for a Dream is a special movie, I think. I mean, there was a lot of stuff he did in that movie visually um, and, and storytelling-wise that, you know, you really hadn't seen so much before. Maybe not storytelling-wise yeah. as much, but at least visually. Like, with all those uh, those jump cuts and montage cuts, like, that was something that was, like, really exciting. I remember when I first saw that, just, like, sort of my mind being blown, blown when, like, the way that the... The, the little close-ups of the drugs, you know, as they're yeah. injecting them into their bodies and stuff. Like, that was pretty amazing stuff. So that movie was $4.5 million budget. Wow. Which is pretty standard, independent um, budget for, like, that year, 2000. Yeah, the, the, like, I bet now if you were to, you know, <laughs> like, like okay, what what is the ratio now? It's That's probably, like, 1 million, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they don't make movies like this anymore. Yeah, not really. Gosh, too bad, huh? Yeah, Superhero movies company. have taken away so much from us, man. Well, I think the takeaway for me from Shane Carruth was, like, if I could have a career where I'm making movies on the side and all I'm spending is, like, $7,000 or $50,000 and you're able to make it into a film festival and win awards and get critical acclaim and, and f distribution in a theater, like, that's pretty awesome. Oh, like, yeah. Maybe that's enough for him and he doesn't need anything more. Like, I would... I would like to think that I could have a career tra trajectory that would like continue to grow. But even if all I had was what he had, I think 
that would be pretty cool. Oh, like, yeah. Like, it was inspiring just to be like, oh, cool. Like, there's this guy that's, like, living out there in the world. I really don't know what he does outside of making movies. He's not, like, a huge name. I think he has, like, a pretty big cult following. And he's he's able to make movies. And that's pretty cool. Do you know if he's working on a movie now? I think so. I heard he's working on, actually, a big budget movie. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, that he he wrote a movie that he needed a lot of money for, and so he's going to do his like first big budget oh, movie. Oh, with the studio and stuff? Let me see. Uh, I'm not sure if it's with the studio. Um, Give me just a second sure. here. Okay, so it says I'm on a Slash Film right now. Uh, for his third movie, Kruth is pulling in some money. If not big budget by studio standards, we're definitely talking about far more money than he's used to. And if things work out, that will allow his script, The Modern Ocean, to be realized on screen just as he wants it. Hmm. So he, what he did is he signed with an agent, wow. uh, William Morris, so that way he could get access to, to make this nice. movie. There you go. Well, that's what you got to do, right? You got to play that game. Um, yeah. It's funny. So finally, maybe after doing two movies on that like low budget level, he's like, "All right, well, I've done that. What's next? What do I want to do next? And I'm I'm ready for the next challenge." Yeah, he's got to grow himself, you know, get to a bigger to a bigger yeah. level. That's cool. I'm glad that he's doing that because um, if he just kept on making movies like that, I mean, it would be cool to do that just to make upstream color sized movies for the rest of his career. But um, it's nice to hear that he's trying something that'll challenge him, you know, and take him in a new direction. Yeah, I mean, whatever that means for each individual person, you just gotta have to keep being challenged. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm excited to see what that comes, how, what that, how, how that comes together. I mean, to be honest, like you're talking about, oh, I would wish to have a, you know, life like Shane Kruv. Of course, you know, like he got to make movies, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know if we could follow that same trajectory either one of us. Like, I don't think the movies that we want to make, I don't think we could. I don't think I'm smart enough. Well, <laughs> smart enough. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that could go and go that far. I'm just saying that the kind of ideas and the kind of stories we're trying to tell, I don't think you can really do for $7,000, you know? Um, I mean, well, I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to like scale back and just get to the point where it's just two people talking, which is something I'm not really good at. Every single time I try to make a low budget movie where it is like two people talking, it en- ends up like I throw all these action set pieces into yeah. it. Yeah. Blow out my the budget. The thing I want to say is that like, you know, like what he did was amazing, but it's not like a lot of ton. I mean, tons of people are doing the same thing. It's just like no one, mm-hmm. no one yeah. but him has gotten into Sundance this way, really. <laughs> you know, like we talk about your friend Jose. Um, my friend um, made mm-hmm. a movie that was like you know shot on sixteen millimeters, same kind of shooting ratio. I think you know, like he did. They just would do maybe a little bit more. They would do like rehearsals, and they would do two takes of everything, and that's it. And right. and. Evan Kidd just did his three thousand yeah, dollar feature. Exactly. So I mean, it's true. A lot of people are doing it, but like the like that magic trick of pulling it off and like actually making something that's really really good and good enough to like get you noticed is not the norm. Yeah. And so that's why I feel like these stories are really dangerous because everyone like listens to them and like that could be me, that could be me. Which I I guess the delusion is important in order to get that stuff done, but. The reality is it's not going to be I think you need to be delusional, but I think you also (laughs) need to be, um, you know, you need to be like true to what you're trying to tell, like the story that you're trying to tell. Like, I love, I love this because like what we talked about earlier in the episode, this whole like, you know, find a story that's going to change your life thing. Like everyone should read that, um, that 
little excerpt and just follow that for finding their story. And if they did that and then they went out to make their movie, whatever budget they do it from, I think the chances of it being like this kind of story are way higher, you know? Yeah, I agree. Because I think a lot of times people just say like, oh, I'm going to make a movie that's like these guys who are going to do this or that or like, you know, whatever. And like, it's just like, it's whatever. It's like, oh, they're going to break into the Super Bowl to like, you know, like steal some seats and it's going to be like a heist movie, but it's going to be like a stoner comedy. It's good, whatever, you know? And like, that's like the concept. Right. And it's like, that's not really a story. Like, that's just like things that will happen. That's just like a, I don't, almost like a genre description of some kind. It's not really like, <laughs> like it all comes down to the characters, you know? It's like, who are these people? Like, what's it about? Like, why is a story important to us as humans? I think those kinds of questions, whether or not the audience thinks about those things, I think if you're thinking about them, they'll, it'll create a story that's going to connect with an audience in a much deeper way. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's hard to put that what you're saying into words, but it's something that I've I've def I've noticed more and more and more. It's like it's the action of what happening in the story is not what makes a good story. It's the there's like this underlining um I, I don't want to call it structure, but like life to a story that comes from like the person writing it or the people writing it right. that, like that there's something there's some truth in it there's something that those people are saying with it um most recently i played the new uncharted uncharted 4 and the story is so good and it's not because there's a bunch of cool action set pieces and things that happen but there's actually like a message in the game mm. and it's really amazing and i I thought it was a really well told story, and I think a lot of people will probably, probably play that game and be like, "Yeah, that game is so cool, and it was so compelling because you know there's gunfights and I'm like climbing on things and I'm searching for pirate treasure." It's like, no, actually, I'm sure that the main reason you like that game is because the underlying story in it, and that the, <laughs> the people who made the game actually had something to say. Because if you just took away the story and you just had all those fun action set pieces, it would be everyone would complain that it was a derivative game of like Tomb Raider or derivative of Indiana Jones. But the reason it's not derivative of those those franchises is because it has something unique. There's some it's a unique story that it's telling. Well, it's still derivative of those of those uh, games, but I mean, it is. But, but you don't it feel matter. it. You're not yeah. like you're not sitting there going, "Oh man, I've seen this before. This is so much like Tomb Raider. This is so much like Indiana Jones." I was just sitting there with like a big grin on my face because I was so entertained, and they were they were telling me a story that wasn't like Indiana Jones, that wasn't like Tomb Raider, even though there's so many things that it was doing that was exactly like those movies or exactly like those games so my wife wanted because i told her that you play the game and you loved it or whatever and she wanted to know have you played all the other games or is this the first game in the series i played i played all of them except for the first okay. one yeah see that was like our big reason why we didn't want to get it because we were, we haven't played any of the other ones and we were worried that you know trying to come into the fourth one we would not understand what's going on and we wouldn't really get the story wouldn't really resonate with us as much because we haven't played three games with these characters you know uh, i don't think so i think it's pretty good all the games are really good as standalone okay, games cool. i think i played three first and then i went back and played two and, and then four there's like these little easter eggs for people that are 
that know the franchise pretty okay. well. But I think if you came into it cold, you would enjoy it just nice. as much. Nice, awesome. Well, yeah, we just got Doom Four, which is uh, awesome, um, and I've been really enjoying that. And that it's it's funny. It's like also got a, a story to it. It's way less of a story, and it's way more of a focus story. <laughs> but they do like. Cause like I had read like, Oh, it's not about story. It's all about action. And then you play the game, but it's like, that's true, but they still do have cutscenes. They still do have story. There's still things to find. Like there's like, you know, still, you know, a world that they've built, you know, that you can discover and there's lots of secrets and hidden things. So it's still got a lot of that and it's got crazy, awesome, gory, uh, demon killing action. Mm. So it's fun. But then at the same time, we also got Far Cry Primal. I don't know if you've played this game. But uh, no, I played Far Cry yeah, Four. That was the last one. It's I played. uh, it's really interesting because it's like all set in ten, like the caveman times, like ten thousand BC or whatever, and uh, mm-hmm. that's really heavily story based. So it was sort of fun. Like we we started playing Doom, then we jumped over to Primal, then we jumped back to Doom, and you sort of get the best of both worlds because in in one it's like you're you're sort of like <laughs> have the story of your your people that you know these uh you know indigenous people that you're like. You're trying to, like, you're a tribe and there's these other tribes that are trying to kill your tribe and you're trying to grow your tribe and, you know, get more people to your village. And, you know, it's got like all this mystical storytelling caveman stuff going on. It's really fun. So it's nice to have the balance. But yeah, I definitely want to play Uncharted 4 uh, when I get a chance. Yeah. So that's what I'm recommending this week. Shout out to Uncharted 4. Awesome game. Great story. I really liked it. It was the best movie I've seen this year. Nice. It's a it's a seventeen hour movie. I haven't finished Doom yet because we just got it. But uh, I, if you like shooters, I think you're just gonna love this game to death. And there's, it's funny. Like we love playing Mario games too, and it's weird to say, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of kind of platformer Mario type things in Doom. Like you can like go around <laughs> and like find like oh there's a pipe here that you can jump onto this ledge this ledge and then you go down Ooh. this corridor and then boom secret and you get like a little bonus upgrade or whatever you know and there's like all these classic Doom maps like each um level has a classic Doom map hidden within the level so if you love the old Doom you can find these little levers and then open a door and like you enter into the old Doom world so it's like all 2D pixelated and like. You get to like do challenges within those worlds. So it's it's been pretty cool. Well, that's it. Why don't you take us out? All right, let's do it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Please check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can subscribe to our show notes and share your thoughts on this episode or all the, all the other episodes that we've ever done. You can also send us an email to um, podcast at makingmoviesishard.com and we'll share it on the show or you can suggest a topic or you can tell us whatever you wanted to tell us and we don't have to share it, but we could share it, whatever you want. Uh, and then if you like the show, tell a friend, tweet us out, share us on Facebook. And more importantly, we took this off the little thing, but I mean, iTunes reviews are great. You know, we love those. So if anyone wants to give an iTunes review, it doesn't even have to be a written review. It can just be a five-star review. That would be totally Or a three-star review or a one-star if you hate the show. Yeah. I mean, we don't only want five. I mean, we do only want five stars, but if you really <laughs> don't like the show, you should tell us so we can get better. It's all about growth, you know? Um, so also I wanted to mention, we didn't talk about this yet, but this is episode 50. I know 50 isn't really the biggest number episode, but I'm waiting for episode 52, but still like five zero, man. Like that still feels pretty good. Like we just had Super Bowl 50. We had episode 50, (laughs) like 50. I mean, I know it's not as big as 52, but it's still pretty big. So that's pretty exciting. If you're just joining us, 
that's 50 episodes one a week one so it's not like week. we're releasing multiple episodes a week like this is one a week we're almost at our one year anniversary yeah it's pretty cool I, I i really love that we've had this commitment to doing one a week i think that's the way that's the way podcast should be you know no recycledness just every week we're here <laughs> you, you can listen to us or you, you don't have to but we're here <laughs> 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 like old school radio like old school radio absolutely um so yeah thanks so much for listening thank you timothy for an awesome episode thanks Alric. and uh yeah have a great week all right see you guys <laughs>